Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. A big surprise in the steel industry. U.S. Steel sold to a company in Japan. What some lawmakers and the union are now saying. Today on the show, the latest from the Ohio Federation of Teachers and what labor accomplished this year and what may be in store in 24. Welcome to the Tuesday, December 19th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including... Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We're going to start things off on the show today with Melissa Cropper, longtime supporter of America's Workforce. She serves as president of the Ohio Federation of Teachers. OH.AFT.ORG is her website. And uh, first thing she's going to reference is organizing wins. Last month on November 17th, adjunct and full-time faculty, this would be at the uh, Columbus College of Art and Design, won their union vote overwhelmingly. Adjunct faculty, 87%, and uh, full-time faculty, 70%. Then, on November 29th, library workers at Pickerington Public Library won their vote by 92%. That library, by the way, is the third central Ohio library system that they have organized recently. And this is good news. Melissa is in conversations with workers at more library systems. And we'll talk about the the conditions there, why people are organizing. Well, pay is one thing, but working conditions, we'll delve into that. SB 83, still an attack on workers' rights. It is a far-reaching rollback of labor rights and academic freedom in Ohio's colleges and universities, and they're still trying to work that uh, that bill through the Ohio House. Now, I don't know exactly if the House has gone to recess here, but uh, this is something that's been a stick in the mud for unions for a long time now. Attack on uh, collective bargaining, especially in higher education. Also, we're going to talk about the focus by the Ohio Federation of Teachers on literacy education. As we move into 2024, the union is continuing their focus on the subject. They will distribute thousands of free books at events with local unions thanks to the OFT's partnership with the National Union, the American Federation of Teachers. Earlier this month, Randy Wine of the AFT joined the Cleveland Teachers Union and Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb to celebrate the success of the Cleveland Reads Challenge, where Clevelanders collectively read more than one million books. Great program. Great program. Definitely deserves more PR than uh, what it's been getting. The other issue we're going to delve into today is the staffing and teacher shortage in schools. And it's not just in the state of Ohio. You know, at one time, decades ago, I'm going back to probably the 70s and 80s, the teaching profession was a very sought after profession. Did you know that the number of people entering the teaching profession has decreased since that time by a whopping 80%. There's a lot of issues at play, and Melissa's going to talk about that 
and more as our first guest. John Russo will be joining us later in the show. John was a founding member and co-director of the Center for Working Class Studies at Youngstown State University, along with conducting research on working class history, labor studies, urban studies, and de-industrialization. He helped design and taught in the first certificate program in a working class studies environment in the United States. Now, he left that program. That program is no longer operating but what is operating is working class perspectives. And if you Google working class perspectives, you'll see a lot of blogs. In fact, um, if you go back to 2019, the blog published 43 posts that were read over 94,000 times in 176 countries. John's done a lot with organized labor. In fact, back in the 60s and 70s, he did a lot of research with the UAW and the problems in Lordstown, Ohio, when they were uh, building, oh my gosh, that was the Chevy Vega, and then it turned into the Chevy Cavalier, the Cruze, the Cobalt, and that plant is no longer. I mean, it's just a sign of the times. But we'll take a look at, well, the contracts that were accomplished this year by the UAW, by Teamsters, and the new militancy that you're seeing in union leadership. In fact, unions right now are the strongest in decades. Going into the Christmas holiday, which is just days away, 900,000 Americans are sitting down with some incredible contracts, double-digit pay raises that they have not been able to get over the years. And a lot of that is a pandemic. I mean, obviously productivity is, uh, is very high right now and uh, unions need to do some catching up and they're doing that and they're doing that. So John Russo, who is now the visiting scal scholar at Georgetown's Kalmanovitz initiative for labor and the working poor, which is, uh, which is a group that empowers working people to build an equitable, sustainable and democratic economy through envisioning and creating new resources and strategies. It's a great uh, organization there. They were founded back in uh, 2009. Now look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at BoydWatterson.com. Big announcement yesterday by U.S. Steel. They announced Monday that they would be acquired by Tokyo Bay Steel for $14.1 billion dollars, which is nearly double what Cleveland Cliffs offered some months ago. That was back in August. Now, U.S. Steel says it'll keep its headquarters in Pittsburgh and become a subsidiary of Nippon. The combined company will be among the top three producers in the world of steel. Now, a little background here. In August, U.S. Steel publicly rejected a part cash, part stock deal from Cleveland Cliffs worth about $7.3 billion. Nippon is paying double that, $14.1 billion in cash, and will assume their debt. So it's going to be close to uh, about $15 billion. Now, it was not clear if Cleveland Cliffs was still in the running as U.S. Steel was shopping for a buyer. On an October earnings call, the CEO of Cleveland Cliffs revealed that his company had entered into agreements with U.S. Steel that restricted what he could say 
publicly. He did say yesterday morning that Cliffs identified U.S. Steel as undervalued. Well, Nippon comes out and says, we got you. And they paid double and they got they got it. Now, it still has to be approved by shareholders. And Nippon said Monday it will honor all collective bargaining agreements in place with the United Steelworkers and other employees and is committed to maintaining its relationship with workers. The company has had a presence in the U.S. for almost 40 years, starting with a joint venture with Wheeling Pittsburgh Steel. That was back in 1984. Both of Ohio senators, Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance, issued statements Monday that were critical of U.S. Steel being sold to a foreign company. This is what Vance said. Today, a critical piece of America's defense industrial base was auctioned off to foreigners for cash. I warned of this outcome months ago and will oppose it in the months ahead. U.S. Steel announced the sale by celebrating the certain and immediate value to be delivered to its shareholders, but rest assured that I will interrogate the long-term implications for the American people and will do everything in my power to protect the future of our nation's security, industry, as well as workers. That's uh, J.D. Vance. Now, uh, Sherrod Brown said in a statement that the sale pretty much ignored the voices of union workers. If U.S. Steel must be sold, I have made clear that a pro-union American company that values its workers like Cleveland Cliffs should actually buy that belief. Now, the union is also speaking out. Dave McCall, who we're going to feature on the show this Friday, issued the following statement. To say we're disappointed in the announced deal between U.S. Steel and Nippon is an understatement as it demonstrates the same greedy, short-sighted attitude that has guided U.S. Steel for far too long. We remain open throughout the process to working with U.S. Steel to keep this iconic American company domestically owned and operated, but instead, instead it chose to push aside the concerns of its dedicated workforce and sell to a foreign-owned company. Neither U.S. Steel nor Nippon reached out to our union regarding the deal, which is itself a violation of our partnership agreement that requires U.S. Steel to notify us of a change in control or business conditions. Based on this alone, the USW does not believe that Nippon understands the full breadth of the obligations of all of our agreements, and we do not know whether it has the capacity to live up to our existing contract. This includes not just the day-to-day -day commitments of our labor agreement, but also significant obligations to fund pension and retiree insurance benefits that are the most extensive in the domestic steel industry. Dave McCall goes on to say, Our union intends to exercise the full measure of our agreements to ensure that whatever happens next with U.S. Steel, we protect the good, family-sustaining jobs we bargain for. We also will strongly urge government regulators to carefully scrutinize this acquisition and determine if the proposed transaction serves the national security interests of the United States and benefits workers. No union, says McCall, more acquisitions in its core industries than the United Steelworkers. And rest assured, our union will hold management at U.S. Steel accountable to every letter of our collective bargaining and other existing agreements. Dave McCall, president 
of the United Steelworkers. And you could see this and more on their national website, usw.org. Can't wait to uh, talk to Dave about this coming up on Friday's show. Right now, I've got to take a break. When we come back, Melissa Cropper on behalf of the Ohio Federation of Teachers. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You could find more at ifpte.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. I know we're just days away from uh, Christmas, but you still have an opportunity to pick up a Made in America gift. Just do the, the quick shipping on that. Go to AmericanManufacturing.org. That's our partners at the Alliance for American Manufacturing. And about uh, three, four weeks ago, they came out with their annual Made in America holiday gift guide. And they've got gifts from every state in the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico in there. So there's plenty to pick from. Just go to AmericanManufacturing.org. But do that right away. All right, let's go to line number one. Welcome. One of our longtime contributors to the show, that would be Melissa Cropper on behalf of the Ohio Federation of Teachers. Website, do want to check this out, oh.aft.org. Wrapping up 2023, and we have seen a lot of organizing wins. It's always good to start off with some good news. Melissa, I'm going to turn this over to you. Talk to me about the Columbus College of Art and Design and also library workers at I hope I pronounce this correct. It's Pickerington Public Library. Am I pronouncing that correctly? You got it correct, yes. Good. 
Good, good, you good. You must have okay, good well, somewhere in your life. <laughs> <laughs> I had plenty of good teachers. <laughs> you know, at the beginning of the show, I almost said Pinkerton. You know, the, the guards that you oh, yeah. <laughs> that have been used over, my gosh, well over 100 years to break up uh, union break organizing. Yeah. <laughs> but don't say Pinkerton. This is Pickerington. All right, start off. Start off with the Columbus College of Art and Design. Go ahead. Sure, sure. I think we talked a little bit about them before. Just a great, great group of of uh, professors and adjunct professors who wanted to, who decided to organize with us here in Columbus, uh, as their as their title would indicate. Uh, they're a very artistic, creative group of people, so they've been a lot of fun to work with. But they uh, held their election uh, in November, and just won by an amazing amount. They were challenged. Uh, the original election was challenged. We had filed for the adjuncts in full time to uh, come together as one union, uh, but the, the administration challenged that and forced us to file as two separate unions, adjuncts for one and full time for another. So we had 87 percent um, of our adjuncts voted yes on this for to unionize. Uh, Seventy percent of the full time faculty voted yes. So it was an overwhelming victory for us. Um, our next step now is that we will we will file to bring them together as one union at CCAD. Um, but again, just a really great group of people who worked extremely hard uh, to organize this union, and we're extremely excited to have them part of our part of us at at OFT. And there was very good reason to go union. Can you speak to, uh, to some of the working conditions there and, and the pay that they were getting at the Columbus right, I mean, College of Art pay, and Design? Yes. Adjunct pay in Ohio, is, well, everywhere, is just horrible. Uh, a lot of universities, in our opinion, um, misuses adjunct faculty. Um, they can hire them at a cheaper rate, um, so they hire, them, try to hire a lot of adjuncts instead of hiring full-time. And uh, so paid extremely low rates, uh, extremely low pay. Now in Ohio, in the public sector, adjunct professors don't have adjuncts don't have uh, collective bargaining rights. Uh, we've tried for years to get that into the law, and we can't get it into the law. So they keep denying our adjuncts collective bargaining rights. However, CCAD is a private college, so they are able to come together as a union. So this really, you know, this is the first group of adjuncts that we'll have at OT, and we're excited about paving the way for that. But yes, low pay, you know, uh, uncertainty about coursework, you know, not knowing from semester to semester whether you're actually going to have a class or not, um, you know, having stuff dumped on you at the last minute. So just basically overall um, not having a say in what working conditions are and being paid maybe, you know, $1,500 a course or something like that. So it, it's just um, incredibly, it's, it's unbelievable what our adjunct professors work for. So i so very excited to be able to help them get um, quality pay, quality um, working conditions. Um, and same with, you know, same with our full-time faculty there also, wanting to have more voice in course selection, what's offered when, and just um, how to pay, all the, all the typical types of topics that come up. Well, to your point, the American Federation of Teachers found that more than a quarter of uh, adjuncts earn less than $26,500 a year. Mm -hmm. Employment is only guaranteed for a term or semester at a time for 75% of the respondents, and only only 45% have access to employer-provided health insurance. I mean, these the, the pay is lousy. The benefits are lousy. I mean, there's a lot that they're going to have to bargain for on this one. So, uh, right, I, right. And I, so I'm just excited that uh, as private sector, they actually have the opportunity to do it. Because again, our our uh, public sector 
adjuncts have no access to that. No, they are not. denied collective bargaining rights in Ohio. Let's move on to uh, library organizing. And uh, this one was overwhelming at the uh, Pickerington. This one was just incredible to us. A hundred percent of the people turned out to vote. We've never seen that before in all the elections that we've held. But a hundred percent of the people came out to vote. Ninety-eight percent voted yes to organize. Oh, I'm sorry, ninety-two percent voted yes to organize with us. Uh, so it was just a. It was a. It was a really happy day here in the office when we when we got the vote count in. Uh, again, this is the third library system in Central Ohio that we've organized, and we're working on a few others. Um, and it, it, again, it's, 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 um, it's great to have our library workers join our system. I was a school librarian, and before the school librarian, I started working at our public library when I was a freshman in high school. So libraries have always been part of my background. And so I, I, every time we have you know, start working in another library system, it's just like a, a special thrill for me to bring them in. But again, the same types of conditions. I mean, workers' problems are universal pretty much across <laughs> across these different job sectors when it comes to things like uh, right of transfer between working locations, pay, benefits, being able to get sick care, or sick, sick pay time, uh, parental leave. These are all the kinds of, of, of issues that library workers like other workers are bringing to us. And now that you know, we've successfully bargained a contract, now actually two uh, successful contract negotiations in libraries, we've got more of a template to work from and actually you know, hopefully can get contracts quicker in these places once we get them organized. So you feel optimistic about, well, first of all, two things here. Uh, you're, you're organizing a lot of libraries. You mentioned three here. Obviously, you got a lot more in the 2024 that you want to target. But also getting that first contract, you know how difficult that is. How do you feel about that moving forward, Melissa? Well, you know, we actually just won um, a first contract last week. It came as a shock to us. We thought it was going to take a little bit longer, and uh, the administration at Grandview Public Library actually came to us and said, hey, let's wrap this up before the end of the year. We just want to get this you know, We want to get this wrapped up, which Grandview has been a great place to work with. They, they gave us voluntary recognition. And then they also, you know, worked, you know, said contract negotiations. Um, it's been maybe a little over a year, but for them to come to us and say, "Hey, let's wrap this up," and, and uh, before the holidays was really a great surprise. So again, good contract there, a good contract at um, Worthington Public Library, uh, where again, and first contracts. I mean, first contracts, as you know, are incredibly hard to get, um, but we're getting things like paid parental leave in these first contracts. So we're not just getting, you know, basic template contracts. We're getting good quality first contracts that we can build off of. But uh, as you indicated, getting a first contract is incredibly difficult. And I, I wish that, you know, at the national level, we've talked about card check and things like that. I really wish we could get something, some kind of federal laws passed at the national level that would help with getting a first contract. <clears throat> In the public sector, you know, it is, it's difficult, but it's not quite as bad. In the private sector, like, uh, like you know, we're doing Menlo Charter School, KIPP Charter School, which are both private. Um, oftentimes, the employer will drag their he heels because if they go longer than a year, they can, they can force uh, a decertification election if they choose to. So mm -hmm. um, they typically uh, drag their heels and, and make things incredibly difficult. So you know, when it, it, it's, hard, it's hard to win an election to get a union, but it's almost twice as hard to even get that first contract oh, after yeah. you get the election win. To your point, Melissa, you can ask uh, Starbucks workers on getting their first contract. They organize in, uh, what was it, New York? 
at Staten Island and have yet to achieve a, a, a first right. contract there. And you and I have talked about uh, uh, charter schools over the years, and I came across a story about a uh, charter school in the District of Columbia. This was this goes back to June of 2017. The teachers there, I mean, the conditions were really bad. You know how it is in many charter schools. They right. voted overwhelmingly to form a union, making theirs the first unionized charter school in the city. But they dragged on with the talks and dragged on right. and dragged on. Two years later, January of 2019, they closed the school. Right. <laughs> I mean, you, you've seen that happen, right? Oh, charter, yeah. Uh, oh, yes. Yes. We have. And charters are especially difficult um, for two reasons. One, that you, the one you just mentioned being one reason is that they can, they can just shut their doors anytime they want to shut their doors. So, you know, it's quite different from our public school or a lot of public systems. Um, but also there's such a high rate of turnover. So it's not uncommon for us to, for example, we've got one charter school where there are 56 people employed there, and we organized them, and we and we, and we won our election with over 90% of the vote. Um, during contract negotiations, uh, you know, the, the membership, not membership, the actual number of teachers are dropped to like 28 people. And of those 28 people, only six of them, we still only have six there who are originally there when we organized. So there's such a high turnover that it takes a lot of diligence and a lot of effort on our part to keep people engaged and help the, you know, all the new people coming on understand why you need a union um, because they just haven't been there. Yeah, so it yeah. Is, yeah charters, charters are really, really difficult. The management is banking on that, too. They're banking Correct. on that turnover. Correct. So drag, drag your heels, drag it out as long as you possibly can um, so that people get tired and frustrated. Melissa Cropper, president of the Ohio Federation of Teachers. Check out the website, oh.aft.org. The stories we talked about, the organizing wins are all posted there. We will continue with Melissa. Going to get an update here on SB83. Later in the show, going to check in with John Russo, formerly with the Center for Working Class Studies, talking about all the labor wins this year. Can we continue that in 24? We'll hear from John later in the show. Back in a few minutes. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. Are you an experienced mechanical insulator looking to take your career to the next level? Insulators Local 50 in Central Ohio has steady work for a number of years. Insulators Local 50 offers a total wage and benefits package that can't be beat. It's not just the competitive wages. Local 50 also provides medical, vision, and dental insurance with no paycheck deductions for you and your family. Don't miss out on the chance to secure your future. Join us at Insulators Local 50. Earn great pay and the best benefits. Visit insulators50.com forward slash AWF50 to fill out the online form and a Local 50 representative will call to begin the process. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. 
The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at uaw.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always, always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. Let's go back to our live line rejoin Melissa Cropper. President of the Ohio Federation of Teachers. All right, Melissa, talk to me about SB 83, Senate Bill 83, which is an attack on workers' rights. And uh, I, I know the legislature was trying to get this over the finish line. Are they still in session or are they gone for the year? What's what's the status on oh, that? Oh, um, I think they – I've lost track, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, think, I think they are finished for – I think they had their last session last week. They had some as needed on this week, but I don't think they're meeting this week. Okay. Well, where, where do we stand with this with this uh, SB 83? Uh, Bill 83 is what we call the Higher Ed Destruction Act because they literally are trying to destroy higher education in Ohio. We thought that it had come to a hard stop, that it wasn't even going to get out of committee. And, um, and people you know, following this bill probably saw that the Speaker Stevens had come out saying that he had no interest in passing this bill. Um, but then we were concerned that there might be a last-minute a last push a couple weeks ago to get it out. And sure enough, uh, the day before the higher ed committee meeting, which would have been like two weeks ago, they all of a sudden put it on the agenda that it was going to be up for a vote in committee. And, uh, of course, if they put it up, they weren't going to put it out there unless they knew they had the votes, obviously. So we are furiously making calls to the three Republican people who had been voting against it, so it wasn't leaving committee. Um, But unfortunately, Representative uh, Gail Manning flipped her vote and turned into a yes, so it was able to pass out of the higher ed committee. just as, as a shocking display of democracy, as we see sometimes at our state house, uh, when, when the when the committee meeting started, they called for a vote on the bill, and Representative Joe Miller said, "Wait a minute, we got seven pieces of testimony that have been submitted to be read," <laughs> and uh, Chair Chair Young said, "Oh, we can do that after the vote." I was like, well, that's a great testimony after the vote. But unfortunately, that just shows how things are working right now. Really not, the people in charge really are not interested in what the people have to say about the bills. We'll just go ahead and pass it. So it passed it on a committee, but it has not made it to the floor yet. And Speaker Stevens is still saying that this bill needs a lot of work and he doesn't have any interest in passing it. Um, but, of course, we, we still have to be very diligent and making sure that, that you know, people making these decisions understand how horrible, horrible this bill is. Um, you know, Gail Manning, uh, again, I you know, talked with her a couple times, and her reasoning was that previously the bill um, would not have prohibited workers on campus from striking, and they removed that provision. So in her mind, that made the bill, you know, wasn't so anti-labor. But as mm-hmm. I tried to point out to her, in removing that, they also added language that restricted what could be collectively bargained. 
so retrenchment and other issues could not be collectively bargained anymore, which is worse than not being able to strike. If you just tell us, we, you tell us we can't even bargain something that right. is really tying our hands uh, in a really horrible way. So there's still a huge, huge attack on labor. Then that's not even to mention all the other horrible stuff that is in the bill. You know, one representative stopped me on the way and said, I've got an idea. We could just remove the bad things from the bill, replace it with something else. I said, there's nothing good in the bill. And you'd have to just, you'd just have to throw away the whole bill. But, um, but hopefully we're able to keep it stopped. Um, I think labor played a, a huge, huge role in keeping SB 83 from moving forward, as well as groups like um, Honesty for Ohio Education, some other coalition groups. Uh, but we have to keep the pressure on um, because it, it will come back. It will come back for sure. I'm um, still so amazed. This, this is Florida. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, it's Florida. Ohio. But I'm still amazed at what you said. Let, let's vote on the bill. Let's pass the bill. We could do the debate after we pass the you bill. Read, you, could, yeah, you read the testimony after we vote. I, I, like, I, mean, that, it, I mean, that's just, I mean, I want people to think about that because that that is such a, I mean, that's the way they're operating. And that's yeah. such a huge slap in the face to people who took the time to write testimony. And, you know, we do this in the hopes that someone is actually going to care about what we have to say because that's how our democracy is supposed to work. And to say, well, let's take the vote first, and then we can look at the testimony. Unbelievable. Yeah, I see. It really I is see unbelievable. In your notes, this is the biggest attack on public sector union rights in Ohio since the fight over SB five. You're 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 pretty much of that opinion. I am. Yeah. Yes, we are of that opinion because again, it, it's it's tying the hands of what can be collectively bargained, which is what SB five was about to. It, it's saying what can and cannot be collectively bargained, and. People, you know, we always have to remember that, you know, they're going to try to tell us, well, this, this only applies to our faculty on, on higher ed institutes. It's very limited. Once you allow someone to get that foothold, it spreads. Um, so, you, you know, they're going to start with higher ed institutes, then it's going to spread to K-12, and then it's going to spread to other public sector unions. Uh, they, they, the, the mistake they made with Senate Bill 5, as we all knew, was it was a complete overreach. They threw too many groups in at one time and got the public all riled up. This is more of a sneak attack where let's let's go after one group first and then we'll go after another and then another. Um, so that's what we have to be cautious of. So so what's happening in Ohio and in America today? Not not all states, but uh, definitely ones where there's uh, conservative majorities. There's an attack on higher education and an attack on teachers. And uh, I, I sent you a story, too, about... Uh, how the teaching profession, I mean, that was something that everybody wanted to get into back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And ever since, you know, all these attacks, people don't want to become a teacher anymore. And uh, I was reading uh, a post where this profession has decreased by a whopping 80%. 80%. Melissa, where are we go? How, how are we going to get people to get involved in teaching, whether it's in elementary, um, high school, or, you know, um, college level. I mean, when it comes to professorships and things of that nature, I mean, if, if this is going to continue, what's the answer to this? Do you have any idea? Well, I have ideas. It's just that the people who make the decisions don't listen to them. So, I mean, we, we have to make it, first of all, we have to stop the attacks on teachers. I mean, it's that simple. We have to, we have to restore respect for the profession. So all these culture wars are just wreaking havoc on our system because you know teachers have for a long time and not just teachers everyone who works in the school system you know our bus drivers our secretaries this everyone in the school system has for a long time dealt with the low pay 
and has you know dealt with you know not always the the best working conditions, but we've been able to collectively bargain good working conditions, et cetera. But there's always been a little bit of an acceptance of you know we're this is a public service, uh, we're not going to get paid as well as we do in other areas. But like you said, there was always that respect for the profession. Now there's this constant, constant bashing of teachers and bashing of the public education system. You know, always always being told that that we're failing our kids, always being told that we're grooming our kids now in these culture wars and being accused of indoctrinating children and being accused of not having the kids' best interests at heart. And when that's, when, you, when that's out there in the atmosphere all the time, of course, kids absorb that too. And then it leads to you know, increasing behaviors in the classroom that are harder and harder to deal with. And then being forced to, to work in a system where you don't have autonomy over what you do anymore. Again, in the past when we saw that a lot of respect around the profession, we also saw that we trusted teachers to, to know how to handle their classroom, know what to teach and how to teach it and when to teach it. And now it's becoming so prescriptive with all the standardized testing and being judged based upon those tests, that testing. Um, it, it's just this whole mountain of things. So. You know, if we want to change that, again, we have to change the rhetoric around, rhetoric around teachers. We have to give them a little bit more autonomy in their classrooms. We have to move away from this testing culture and move back to an, a, a, a culture where we're nurturing learners and we're trusting teachers to use their judgment on how to control that classroom, how to teach that classroom, how to help students. Uh, we need to reduce the amount of paperwork, uh, all the unnecessary paperwork that happens, all the overemphasis on on testing, doing those things, and a lot of those, you know, a lot of those things don't actually cost money. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's it's just re- reducing the reducing the unnecessary work and allowing teachers to do what they need to do, and then support them. Just just support them. Yeah. Uh, and but you know even even teach you know, teachers aren't telling kids to go into the teaching profession. Parents aren't telling their children to go into the teaching profession. Uh, the legislature's bashing teachers all the time. It, it, it's it's uh, a huge huge problem that we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg on right now. Yeah, yeah, and it's happening all over America. Oh, well, yeah. like you said, you you have the answers. They're just not listening to you. <laughs> it's <a> s- <laughs> simply, and, and we've been simply. telling them for years that this is going to be a problem. That, that these yeah. things are you know, creating problems. Now, they they want to solve the problems. They, meaning again, the policymakers, want to solve the problems by just uh, lessening the requirements for what it takes to become a teacher. So, uh, you know, basically, like we. It, it, that's uh, how Senate Bill 168 that they just passed out. Um, basically, if you have certain number of hours in content area, then you can become a teacher. So you don't have to have any hours in pedagogy at all. It's just, and again, we all know people who are very smart, know their topic very well, but that doesn't mean that they can teach that information to someone else. In fact, mm-hmm. I would argue, like I always said, like with, with math, and math was my more difficult subject. Someone who was very good at math often had a hard time explaining to me <laughs> how to do math because it came so simple to them, right? So, so you know, just knowing a topic doesn't mean you know how to teach it. And I think that's what, again, people lose track of sometimes, that there really is a, a science to how teaching is done. And to say that just anybody can walk into a, a classroom is another slap in the face to all the people who put in years and years of education and honing their craft. All right, Melissa, one more thing here before you go, the focus on literacy education. This is on behalf of the Ohio Federation of Teachers and also the American Federation of Teachers. And I see uh, you're going to do a 
statewide literacy day in February. And you've also had a warm up to this in, uh, in Cleveland with the Cleveland teachers union and uh, mayor Justin Bibb. Can you, uh, can you tell us what happened and what's going to happen here? Yes. Uh, as we've talked about before, we've been putting a focus on literacy for the past, uh, at least for a year, actually probably about two years now. I've uh, given away over you know, hundreds of thousands of books. Uh, AFT has given away millions of books across the country. Uh, so it's a, a great initiative that we just continue to build upon. Cleveland just finished a year-long literacy initiative. Our Cle- Cleveland Teachers Union worked in conjunction with Mayor Bibb in the city and with the library system to push um, literacy and to promote to promote reading and to try to um, get children to uh, read, to spend, uh, I can't remember the exact number now, but it was uh, so many hours of reading that they collectively put in. Again, it was millions of hours of reading that the children across the city of Cleveland put in reading. And they just culminated with the literacy parade where they paraded through the city and, and gave away gave away even more books. So, you know, I think in Cleveland last year they, they gave away over 40,000 books to students across the city. Um, so just a, a lot of fun, uh, but we're looking at how we, you know, continue to expand that. And, you know, that was a big thing in Cleveland, but we've got locals all across the state who are doing similar types of things. Um, our Vanguard Sentinel um, Career Tech School uh, just did a Halloween or a parade around um, sometime during the holidays. They did a parade where they also were giving out books, but they connected it with different career types that they have within uh, the Career Tech Center. So they sent us a picture of one of our students dressed up as a welder and then handing out a book, handing out books to children about welding. And so they're just making that connection again between literacy. Uh, what you can do when you grow up, and, and again, the stories of children's eyes lighting up when they, they see someone who's wearing their welding gear and handing them a book. So it's promoting both literacy and you know, workforce development, career tech development all at the same time. So really exciting. Um, so yes, in February, we are doing um, a professional development day for our teachers across the state. Uh, we're working with them on the new reading initiatives that are coming out from the state level around the science of reading, making sure that we're offering them high-quality professional development from AFT. Uh, um, but then we're looking to expand that um, after we go through our training and update our professional development. We're also going to do some professional development around um, working with parents and teaching parents some skills to work with their children on how to, how to help them learn to read at home or, or you know, how to care, you know, pick up where we leave off at school and help children when they're at home. So we'll be doing that later in the year with another huge book event book giveaway attached to that also. So Keep in, keep in touch, keep in tune with us, and we'll keep you up to date on what's happening with our literacy initiatives. I love it. I love it. Well, you can do that by going to the website, oh.aft.org. And while I'm giving out those addresses, you can also follow the union on Facebook at OFT Union and on X, formerly known as Twitter, it's OFT Advocate. Melissa, great job as usual. Super job today. Thank you so much for what you do on behalf of the teachers in the state of Ohio oh.aft.org again the website you take care the best of the holidays to you we'll talk to you thank in you. january thank you thank you right. bye quick break john russo is going to talk about the year in labor right after this this is america's workforce it takes layuna to keep america running 
Over 70,000 public employees are part of LIUNA, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at Teamster.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The, the United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. This portion of the show brought to you by the International Union of Bricklayers and Allied Craftworkers. For more information, please visit BACweb.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at voidwaterson.com. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, ULAgency.org. Let's go to uh, line number two, and welcome back to the show. Haven't had this guy on for a while. John Russo, founding member and co-director of the Center for Working Class Studies at Youngstown State University. And uh, he is now the visiting scholar at the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. John's been on the show a number of times talking about labor and uh, also, he did a lot of research on the UAW back in the 1960s at Lordstown, a plant that is now shut down. Boy, what a history there. You had the Chevy Vega. You had the Cavalier. You had the Covalt, the Cruise. And a lot. they had three shifts at one time, but no longer, no longer. But we have seen some good contracts this year. That- about especially with the UAW we got the Teamsters we seem to have a new militancy among union leaders John welcome back to the show I figured this will be a good time to take a look at what happened in 2023 and the big question is can we continue in 2024 what uh, what's your thoughts on what happened this year let's start right there go ahead brother well I think there were a number of conditions that sort of really helped negotiations I think the pandemic caused a reassessment of work-life balance, uh, an increase in the retirements and quiet quits that were going on. Uh, if you look at labor force participation rates, uh, they were, had changed dramatically in tight labor markets. And then you add inflation. Uh, all these sort of added to the uh, demand for higher wages and stem the losses of real wages, real wages that have incurred in many industries and with many employees. Um, so I think that uh, the, the environment was good for the negotiations this time, especially for the UAW. Um, and the workers were indeed more militant, as you suggested. Uh, and that the reason, I think, was that they had taken concessions 
uh, in the uh, teens, and uh, they ultimately were geared up because of all the changes in the economy and the pandemic to uh, really fight for better wages and benefits. You know, it, it seems too, especially with Sean Fain, I mean, he came out to the gate and he pretty much shamed the the CEOs and the management team at the big three. He said, well, okay, you know, you guys have been doing pretty good. You gave yourselves 40% raises. I think we should share some of that. I mean, they didn't get 40%, but that that's shaming in your opinion. That was that? It, it was really, there's a great contestation within the UAW over the election uh, a year ago uh, last spring uh, when the what was called the administrative caucus was defeated not by a lot but uh, were defeated by Sean Payne's uh, caucus uh, and he promised that he was going to do some things differently in terms of negotiations and they did uh, the UAW employed new tactics in this negotiation applying pressure on all three companies simultaneously as opposed to singling out one then using that tentative agreement as a template for the others. Uh, they wanted to capitalize on the fact that the industry's profits were high um, and the tight labor markets. Uh, also, I think it's important to state that they had the support of the uh, Biden administration. Uh, and I think they forced the big three automakers to make concessions, not just on wages, but in a whole set of other areas in the negotiations. With Biden showing up on the picket line, I mean that got a lot of national attention. That had a that had to kind of push it over a little bit, don't you think? No, no doubt about it. It was mostly an economic and a political move by the president, and uh, to gather more su- support, especially states like Michigan and Ohio, um, where you have a higher concentration of UAW members, but also. Uh, given what was going on in the South and the types of plants down there, it gave them a model of why union organizing and bargaining was uh, could improve their wages and benefits. John, I'm glad you brought that up because Sean Fain said, now that we have this done, we're going to go after those non-union plants. And, and you probably know that once that deal was done, you saw a couple of those, the Toyotas, the Hondas, and Hondas saying, oh, yeah, we're going to give you a 10, 10%, maybe a 20% raise here. How do you feel about them uh, being organized here? Because if, I mean, Sean said, if we get them all, there's like 13 non-union companies, we could double our membership in the auto sector. How do you feel about that moving forward, John? It's going to be very difficult. Uh, just up the road here in D.C., uh, a friend of mine, uh, Stephen Silva, wrote a book called The UAW's Southern Gamble and the organizing the workers at foreign-owned vehicle plants, and he studied it over the last 30, 40 years, and it's very difficult to organize those particular plants. It's hopeful that they can organize some of them, but as we know, uh, Ed, we have a Honda plant in our state, Mm -hmm. and there's been absolutely no progress in terms of organizing that particular plant. Uh, So it's going to be difficult. The laws work against the UAW and the labor in general in terms of organizing. It makes it very difficult to organize plants, even in the north, but also certainly the south. Yeah. Okay, let's take a look here at at 2024. Altogether, there's 100,000 Americans sitting down with uh, new contracts. 
in in that were accomplished this year. I got to throw in the Teamsters and the Teamsters too. A lot of militancy there with uh, with the UPS, and we're talking about three hundred forty thousand members there alone. My union, SAG, AFTRA. They accomplished a lot when it comes to artificial intelligence. You got the Writers Guild. You had the healthcare workers out west. I think there were like uh, 20, uh, 75,000 there, 75,000 members of the uh, healthcare sector that uh, they got pretty good wages, in some cases 25%. Can this continue in 2024? John, you've been a student of this for, uh, for decades now. Uh, there's a lot of momentum. You referenced the pandemic. We still have a relatively labor-friendly National Labor Relations Board. We got a union-friendly president. It is going to be a political year. What's your thoughts? Well, I think all those things that you said are, are very important, but at the same time, we are out really on the brink of new ways of doing work. I think automation is increasing. Uh, artificial intelligence is going to dramatically impact both the, the SAG people and the UAW. Uh, the production of EVs is, are going to require fewer workers. Uh, so I think it's going to be difficult, but there's at least you can have a contract that you can bargain around in the, at the UAW and with SAG after. But we are on the brink of real changes in how work is done and who's doing the work. And I think that's going to be the real issue uh, for the next decade. All right, John Russo, visiting scholar at the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor and also he's been uh, a blogger for working class perspectives and i guess there's some sad news here you're uh, you're you're closing that down after what is it over 15 years what's the story there john yeah over 15 years 40 blogs a year uh we decided that we've had enough in terms of doing that work uh so I, and we did explore so many different areas and uh the readership was still quite strong around 2000 people uh, every week, but it also got picked up at a lot of uh, other sites. But I think that's, uh, I guess, age, both my age and I think uh, the amount of work that really requires to doing the blogs, getting people to do it, editing them, marketing the blog to other areas. Mm -hmm. uh, we just got a little tired. Well, it was a fun read. A lot of good stuff there. So 176 countries picked up on that. So a nice yep. run, a very good run. John, you take care. Run. Tell your lovely wife, Sherry, I said hello, and we'll, we'll talk in the new year. Okay, brother? Red sounds great to me. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up tomorrow, the American Federation of Government Employees and a wrap-up on the Trades Women Build Nations Conference. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.